Amen. Uh, go ahead to that first picture if you would. This is my son, John. Uh, my wife, Carrie, and I have four boys, and John is our youngest. He is 10 years old right now, and as you can see, he likes Burger King. Um, uh, the thing I want to draw your attention to on, with this picture here is the glasses. This, these are John's glasses. I think he got glasses when he was in first grade, if I remember right. Uh, a couple years ago, John went on a field trip uh, with his class. They went to a farm together, and on this farm, they had a pumpkin train, E-I-E-I-O, and um, it was literally like this pumpkin train that went all throughout the farm, so the kids were riding on it. And so while they were on this field trip, my wife, Carrie, got an email from John's uh, first grade teacher, and so I'm gonna e read you the email right now. I have it with us. Uh, it says this, Hi, Carrie. While John was riding on the pumpkin train at the farm today, his glasses fell off his face and the train wheels rode over them. The frames are badly bent, but they may be able to be fixed. Fortunately, the lenses are not cracked. I'm sending it all home in a Ziploc bag with him today. Sorry. And then she made one of those little frowny face emojis with it. Sorry. Um, now, unfortunately, John's glasses are about $400 each. They're not cheap. Um, but at least this was only his third pair of glasses. Uh, we literally, in fact, for this uh, third pair of glasses, because they've been broken so many times before, we opted to really pay the extra money and get like the titanium steel frames. You know what I'm talking about with the scratch protectant on the lenses? But apparently that doesn't help when your glasses are literally run over by a train. Who, who does this happen to? His glasses are run over by a train. And, and, and here's the thing. For me, when I get this message, for a period of time there, I value the glasses over the kid. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the, the kid is irreplaceable. Thank God he didn't fall under the wheels of the pumpkin train, right? But the glasses are replaceable, but there's this period of time, I mean, admit it, if you're a parent here in this room, you've gotten these kind of emails or messages and you're like, are you kidding me? And for a period of time, you switch the values around, don't you? And the thing that doesn't really matter becomes something that matters a whole lot. And the thing that matters a whole lot doesn't seem like it matters as much. And, and we switch the values around. And for some of us, we switch values around like that for entire like seasons of our life. For some of us, it lasts for decades where we have the value switched around. And so today, I want to start a new series. It's called Be Rich. And the whole premise behind this series uh, is that lots of people are talking about how to get rich in our world, right? But not very many people are talking about how to actually be rich. How do you actually be rich to live a life of blessing and generosity? And uh, we were inspired uh, by North Point Church for this series and what God did in their church. And so we, we kind of took it and we made it ours and just believing that God wants to say something to us through this series. And so, so the basic idea is this idea of what does it mean to be rich? And so uh, we're gonna look this morning, I wanna begin us um, by looking at what's gonna be like an anchor passage of scripture for this series. And by that, I mean, we're gonna come back to this passage again and again throughout this series. And so we're going to 1 Timothy chapter six is uh, where we're heading. And so to set the, the stage a little bit for you, the writer Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, is writing to Timothy, who's been kind of like his understudy. And at this point, Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. There's a church there in the city of Ephesus, and um, Paul has kind of set him up. And so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy and saying, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to teach the people at the church there in Ephesus. Now, what you need to know about Ephesus is that Ephesus was a very affluent community. 
In fact, archaeological studies have been done and they've unearthed this unbelievable marketplace that existed. There's almost nothing else like it in the ancient world. And so the commerce and the trade and the, and the market there in Ephesus was absolutely amazing. And so the people of the church in Ephesus were probably very, very affluent people. And so Paul is writing to Timothy and this is what he says. This is our, our kind of our anchor passage for this series. First Timothy six seventeen, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So, so that's the very first part. Well, we'll continue on in the passage in just a moment. But, but just to get really clear right off the bat, who he's talking to, he's very clear. He says, I'm talking to those who are rich in this present world. Now, most people who are rich in this present world are not very good at being rich because nobody's ever really taught them how to be rich. We, we, we talk a lot about how to get rich, but nobody's ever really taught them how to be rich. I'll give you an example. Uh, today uh, is the Super Bowl, right? So in a few hours from now, most of us are going to watch the Eagles and the Patriots again, to, uh, to, you know, go battle it out for the right to say they were the Super Bowl champion um, for this year. Uh, a few years ago, Sports Illustrated Magazine released a study that they had done um, where they basically tracked NFL players um, and they, they found that 78% of NFL players, two years after they retired from the NFL, were either broke or in severe financial stress. They were going broke. Two years after retiring from the NFL, broke or going broke, 78% of them. Same study showed the NBA players weren't much better. Six years after walking off the court of the NBA, 60% of NBA players were broke. Another study tracked um, lottery winners. In fact, there's been several studies of this. The most recent uh, data I saw showed that uh, about 70% of lottery winners, seven years after they won the lottery, are flat broke. We hear statistics like that, right? And we're just like, how can that be? How is that possible? I mean, we think about the kind of money that these people have and, and to think about like, how in the world could they possibly be broke? And the reason is because nobody has taught them how to be rich, there was a lot of effort and energy put into getting rich, but not a lot of energy put into how do you actually be rich? Having a lot of money doesn't make you good at being rich any more than having a lot of kids makes you good at parenting. You know what I'm saying? The two are mutually exclusive. Just because you're good at one does not necessarily mean you're gonna be good at the other. And uh, there's a couple reasons for this. And so just to kind of set the stage of what we're, we're talking about this morning, the reason we're not good at being rich is because wealth has a couple of side effects. So we're gonna look at that. Uh, if you're taking notes, um, this would be a good thing to jot down. First side effect of wealth is that rich people live in denial. It's just true. Rich people live in denial about the fact that they're rich, which is kind of weird if you think about it because you know most people will admit the truth about their lives. Uh, tall people will generally admit they're tall. Our worship pastor, Corey, he's in Florida, by the way, right now. He picked the perfect weekend to uh, take a trip to Florida. Uh, he, if you meet Corey and you say, wow, man, you're tall. I mean, he's a tall guy. He'll say, yeah, yeah, I'm tall. He'll admit it. Short people will usually admit that they're short. Introverts will admit that they're introverted. Extroverts can't wait to tell you that they're extroverted. 
<laughs> but for some reason, rich people, when you, when you meet a person who's rich and you say, wow, you're, you're really rich, they're like, no, I'm not, I'm not rich. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm, we do okay, but I, I'm not rich. I mean, I, most people think like I would need to have at least twice my income in order for me to consider myself rich. And, and yeah, we, we've shared this statistic before, um, but I'll share it again. If you earn $32,000 a year, if your income is $32,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the entire world. In the entire world, if you have an income of $32,000 a year. You see how quiet it is right now? What's hilarious to me, I keep, every time we, we've shared that statistics over and over and over again over the years, every time I share it, I keep waiting for somebody to get delivered and stand up in the room and go, hallelujah, I'm rich. I never knew it. Praise God, I'm rich. And just, I just wait for that to happen. It never happens. Nobody ever stands up whenever I, I announce that. You know why nobody gets excited and announces that every time? It's because we don't think we're rich. Rich people live in denial. We, 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 for some reason, we don't like to admit it. And, and I think the reason why is because for most of us, we make down, or I'm sorry, we make upward comparisons instead of downward comparisons. It's just true. So the reason we don't feel rich is that we're comparing ourselves not to the 99% of people that are below us or 96 or 97% of people that are below us in income. We compare ourselves to the people who are above us, right? So people in the top 1%, they compare themselves to the people in the 0.5% of wage earners and their lifestyle. And people in the 0.5%, they compare themselves to the people in the 0.25%, whatever it is, and so on and so on and so on. Rich people live in denial about the fact that they're rich. The second uh, side effect of wealth is that rich people's hope tends to migrate toward their money. Not because they're bad people. It doesn't happen because we have some kind of evil intent or some sort of, you know, uh, bad motive there to do that. It's just what happens when you have money. When, when your money enters your life, your hope naturally tends to migrate toward your wealth. It just happens. And the Bible says this again and again and again. I actually want to uh, read you. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, followed directly behind it by one of my least favorite verses in the entire Bible. It's amazing that they're right next to each other. So uh, this is Proverbs 18, 10, and 11. Verse 10, the first part of this, is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 11 is one of my least favorite. It says this, The name of the Lord is a strong fortress. The godly run to him and are safe. Isn't that awesome? I love that verse. That, that's, what we're, that's what we're supposed to have in God. That's what God is for us. The name of the Lord is a strong refuge or a strong tower, a strong fortress. And, and what we're supposed to do is we run to him through whatever storm of life we're going through, whatever is happening, we run to him and we are safe. That's what we just did a minute ago when we were worshiping. The name of God is that strong tower. That's what we're supposed to, to run to. That's where our hope is supposed to be. But look at verse 11. The, the next verse immediately says, the rich think of their wealth as a strong defense. They imagine it, their wealth, to be a high wall of safety. So the first, the, the, the writer of Proverbs is showing us, you know, we're supposed to look to God. Our hope is supposed to be in God. He's, the name of the Lord is a strong fortress. But what happens is for us rich folks, uh, 
we, we tend to start thinking that our wall, our wealth is a wall of safety, a strong defense. And what happens is our hope begins to migrate toward our wealth and our money. Not because we're bad people, not because we have some evil motive, but again and again, the Bible just says that that's what happens. It's a side effect of wealth. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you would say, well, I'm not rich. Maybe you don't think of yourself as, as rich. Maybe you're still like, yeah, but still, I'm not wealthy. Okay, fine. But, it, but if you were honest, you would admit that your hope is starting to migrate there. Your hope is starting to migrate away from God and toward your wealth and your money. And so what happens is Paul says two things in this verse that we just read. First thing he says is, don't be arrogant. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. How did he know? How did he know? Have you, have you ever heard someone make this statement? Man, he has a lot of money, but you would never know it. You ever heard anybody say that about somebody else? Yeah, a few of you have heard that. You know why that's such an unusual statement? You know why we pointed out, man, he has a lot, a lot of money, but you would never know it. It's because usually you know it, don't you? Usually when somebody is wealthy, you know it. They, they live it, they show it, they're, they're all about showing it. And so that's why we pointed out whenever it happens, like, wow, they, would have, they have a lot of money, but you would never be able to tell it by their lifestyle, by the way they live. So he says, don't be arrogant. And the second thing he says to those who are rich in this present age, he says, don't let your hope migrate to your money. Don't let your hope migrate to your money because that's what naturally happens to all of us. He says, but put your hope in God. His exact words, I'll read it to you again. He says, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Don't let your hope migrate to your money. Let me just for a second, I wanna ask you to participate in something uh, just to illustrate this idea. And in a moment, don't do it yet. But in a moment, I'm gonna put up two statements on the screen and what I want you to do when these two statements appear on the screen, I want you just to do some self-reflection. I want you to ask yourself the question, which one of these statements produces more anxiety inside of me? Okay, so when these two pop up on the screen, just kind of do an inventory check of your own internal life and just go, which, which one of these two statements do I naturally feel a level of anxiety rise up? You ready? Okay, here's the first statement. There is no God. Second statement you have no money. Which one of those two statements, when you read it, if you're honest, causes you the greatest level of anxiety instantaneously? For most of us, we would say, man, that first statement, there is no God, if that, if that were true, man, that would be awful. And I, I would definitely have to deal with that at some point in my life. Uh, but for us, most of us, that second statement is where all the anxiety rises up. The idea that you have no money like right now today, if you were told you have no money, it would cause panic. I mean, you'd like, I had to figure this out today. I got to get on top of this. Now keep those two statements up there just for a second, just to illustrate the point. Uh, now let's pretend for a moment like you just went to your doctor and your doctor just told you, you have three months to live. The disease you have is going to end your life. You have about three months so you were, just pretend for a moment you were just told, go home and put your affairs in order because within three months you're gonna be dead. Now, which one of these two statements creates the most anxiety inside of you? There is no God 
or you have no more money. So so here's the point I'm trying to make. If our hope is going to be in God anyway at the end of our life, because by the way, that's, trust me, I'm a pastor. I've been with people at the very last few hours of their life many times. Believe me, no one's counting their money in the last few hours of their life. They're wondering, is, is, are these promises of God, are they true? Are they true? And my point is, at the end of your life, if your hope is going to be in God anyway, why not just put your hope in God now while you still have some time? Why not just begin living now as if the, the way you're going to be living anyway at the end of your life? And that's what Paul is trying to get across to Timothy. He's saying our hope tends to migrate toward our money. And, and so if we have a perspective shift we begin to see that really our hope has to be in God and it's gonna be that way at the end of our lives anyway. Notice uh, there in verse 17, when he's talking to the rich people, he says, command those who are rich in this present world. And you you read it and you kind of go, well, what other kind of world is there, right? Well, Paul's trying to hint at something. He's giving us a clue here. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. He's saying that just because you're rich right now in this world doesn't mean that things are always going to be that way. And what he calls in verse 19, the coming age. We'll get to that in just a second. But he says, command those who are rich in this, in this present world. He's just acknowledging just because things are a certain way with your wealth right now doesn't mean that they're always going to be that way. And sometimes we just need a perspective shift. Uh, I've shared with you, um, many of you, in 2015, I was diagnosed with a form of lymphoma. And uh, I went through a a round of treatment already for it. And so every three months, I go in to my oncologist's office and they draw blood and they do tests. And uh, I've been told really, really good news. In fact, I haven't had just a chance to share this up front, but uh, I, I go in every six months for full body CT scans where they can look at the cancer. The kind of cancer I have is incurable, but uh, you know, I, they can treat it for a long time. And you have to just kind of keep paying attention to it. And so uh, the last time I went in for full body scans, the CT scans were so good and the cancer is in a place of remission that they actually told me that I only have to go back now once every year, that they're only gonna do CT scans once every year. Isn't that great? And so, um, yeah. So that's something that I, we've really been celebrating that I feel great about in my life and just um, going through that, that storm and that difficult time. Uh, and yet though, I still have to go in every three months because it is something that's still there. My doctors are always, are always reminding me, it's still there, it's still there. You have to keep paying attention to it and choosing to live your life right, right now in a healthy way. And so uh, let me tell you, I hate those three month oncology appointments. I hate going in. I dread them every time I go in. And here's the thing. I don't dread seeing my doctor, my oncologist. I actually like him a lot. He's a great guy. Uh, I think he's brilliant at what he does. And and I might be nervous about what he would say to me, but I never dread seeing him. Uh, I don't even dread seeing the nurse that pokes me with needles every time I go in. I've been poked with so many needles in the last three years. I've lost track. Needles don't scare me at all. It's just like a non-event in my life. I, I don't dread seeing the nurse and getting poked with needles. What I dread about those three-month doctor's appointments is um, I go in and I check in and then I, for 15 minutes, I sit in this waiting room and I have to sit there and look at all the other patients. And I literally fear it. I dread those 15 minutes where I have to sit in that waiting room and I'm looking at a room full of patients who, many of whom have the exact same diagnosis as me. 
and many of them are on their second or third round of chemo after two or three relapses, and they're going through it again. Um, the last time I was there, there was this guy who, when they called his name, he couldn't even walk across the floor by himself to the, like they had, he had to have help walking across. And I sit there for those 15 minutes and look around that room, and I think to myself, is this me? I mean, is this my future? Is this what I've got to look forward to at some point in my life? And I get this sense just for those 15 minutes. I mean, I'm healthy. I feel great. Everything in in life is good right now. But I get this sense every three months for those 15 minutes I sit there of what this disease could take from me. And I dread it every time. But I have come to realize over the last three years, those 15 minutes are the greatest gift I think I get. those, Those 15 minutes where I have to sit there and think about my life and I have to think about the future and all that is an unbelievable, incredible gift to me. So let me tell you just for a second what I have gotten, what God has given me. And I get it every single time I'm there for those 15 minutes. Here's what happens. I dread it, I hate it, I go there, I experience it. But that night when I go home, when I embrace my wife, when I sit down at the dinner table with my boys and we talk about our day and we eat food that we've prepared that we really love, I have a joy and I have a gratitude that I never had before. There is something that I, that I have in those moments that it just explodes out of my life that I, I never had in the years before that diagnosis and the years before that. Because, because what's happening is the greater my awareness of my weakness, the greater my awareness of my brokenness, the greater my awareness of my need, the greater my, my dependency on God becomes. And the greater my recognition of what I have and, and that I, I begin to see my life and I begin to see for those 15 minutes, it gives me this gift where I see my life through the lens of eternity, that things aren't always going to be this way. And so there's gratitude and there's joy in what I experience right now. I mean, on those evenings when I come home, I'm not freaking out about broken glasses. You know what I'm saying? I'm not freaking out about how much the next pair of glasses is gonna cost because I have this perspective shift. I begin to see everything in my life through the lens of eternity. And that's where real joy begins and real gratitude begins to enter my life. And it has nothing to do with how much money I have. So the question is, how do you keep your hope from migrating to your money? That's the question, right? Paul answers it in these next verses. Here's what he says. Talking to those who are rich in this present age, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, right? Because things aren't always going to be this way, my friends, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Because if your hope is migrated to your stuff, you're not experiencing the life that's truly life. It's not about what God wants from you. It's about what he wants for you. He wants life for you. He wants joy. He wants gratitude. And he says, if if they can learn how to be rich and and to switch the values around to what I want, God says, they're gonna be able to take hold of the life that's really life. 
see your wealth through the lens of eternity and be generous. How do you keep your, your hope from migrating? You gotta see, you gotta have this perspective shift where you begin to see your wealth, you see your stuff, your possessions through the lens of eternity and you learn how to be generous. Um, I wanna take you to a parable that Jesus tells about what happens when we live in the opposite way. In fact, that's where I kind of want to land the plan today is just, I just want this parable that Jesus tells uh, to be the thing because Jesus tells this parable to kind of give us a picture of here's what it looks like when people live the opposite. So go ahead. This is Luke chapter 12. And Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. I, by the way, I love the way that starts out. He, it's a rich man, right? So the guy's already rich. He already has wealth. And then it says the ground of a certain rich man yields an abundant harvest. He doesn't even give credit to the rich man. He doesn't say, well, this guy worked really hard and he got an abundant harvest. Jesus says he's already rich and the ground yielded an abundant harvest. So he thought to himself, self, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, now, if Jesus would have just hit the pause button there, if he would have just stopped talking right there, I kind of wish he would have. Like, it's like, just zip it right there. Just stop, be done. If Jesus had stopped talking right there, we would call this the great American parable. <laughs> Wouldn't we? It's awesome. It's about saving your money. It's about building up this huge retirement account and then enjoying it, you know, when you get to a certain age. That we would tell our teenagers to read this parable. We were like, you need to learn here what Jesus says. We, if, if Jesus would have just stopped right there, it would have been great. It'd be the most celebrated parable in America. But he doesn't stop there. This is what he says next. But God said to him, the rich man, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And, and, and the main idea here that Jesus is trying to get across is he's trying to get us to understand that we have to learn to have this perspective shift and see our wealth through the lens of eternity. And that's when we can take hold of the life that's real, really life. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write down the statement. We don't get credit for what we leave. We only get credit for what we give. Because at the end of our lives, our hope's gonna be in God anyway. And at the end of our lives, we all leave the same amount behind, my friends. All of it. Whether you were wealthy in this present age or whether you weren't, at the end of our lives, we're all leaving the same amount behind all of it. So Jesus wraps up this uh, parable a few verses later. He reminds us again of what he wants his followers to do. He says this, verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, when you begin to see your treasure through the lens of eternity, it loses its grip on you. And then you lose your grip on it. And you start living generously and you start stepping into the life that's truly life that God has for you. And that's 
what God wants for us. It's not just about what he wants from us, it's about what he wants for us. And the number one contender for our hearts is not our time, it's not our talents or our abilities, it's our treasure. But what God is after is our hearts, that's what he wants. But according to Jesus, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also. Your heart and your treasure are linked. Whether we like it or not, our hope just naturally migrates there. Our hearts naturally migrate there. Not because we're bad people. Not because we have some evil intent. Not because we're dumb. It's because that's what wealth does. That's what happens to rich people. And so... God is after our hearts. So next week, I'll just give you kind of a clue of where we're going. Um, Next week, we're gonna talk about how to actually step into this life of generosity and blessing that God has for us. And so we're gonna talk about the heart of God next week. That's what we're gonna zero in on. And we're gonna talk about, I believe, the, the one thing about what moves the heart of God when it comes to generosity that we don't know about. I'm convinced of this. In our church, and I think just in general, in Christianity today, we're gonna talk about the one thing that moves the heart of God the most when it comes to generosity and that unleashes blessing and and, uh, his, his greatness into our lives in ways that we can't even imagine that we just don't know about. We just don't understand it. And so we're gonna go there next week. We're gonna talk about it. But for this week, it's enough just to offer God our hearts. This week is all about our hearts and kind of what, Uh, what it is that God calls us to be. So let's do this. Would you stand with us? I love if we could um, just bow your heads. We're just gonna come to him. Lord Jesus, uh, as we come before you right now, God, we just recognize that in our world, there's all these things that demand uh, our attention. There's all these things that demand our money. And um, God, maybe we don't feel like we're rich. Maybe we're in denial about the fact Uh, that we are rich because we've been spending our time comparing ourselves to the 0.8% of people, whatever it is above us. Um, So God, this morning, I I, I just pray that you would just give us your perspective, that we would see our wealth through the lens of eternity. God, maybe right now we just need to confess. We just need to to repent and just confess to you uh, and just say, my hope has been migrating toward my money. Whether I feel rich or not, the reality is my hope has been migrating there. It's been migrating there. The name of the Lord, God, we confess, we declare the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Our wealth can never be a strong tower. It can never keep us safe. It can never provide for us. God, we come to you who so richly provides for every need that we have. So this morning, God, we give you our hearts. We surrender all to you, God. We give you all, everything recognizing, God, that you can't have all of us if we're still clinging to our wealth and to our money. So God, do a work in us. Give us that perspective shift. Give us that that mentality that says, I see everything in my life. I see that wealth through the lens of eternity. And God, would you unleash blessing and joy into our lives and gratitude as we learn to give you our hearts in that way. In Jesus' name, everybody said.